Hello, I'm Andrew Fuller. I'm a clinical psychologist and work with children, teenagers and their families, particularly in the areas of resilience, learning strengths and well-being. I'm also the chairperson of Generation Next. And in this series of podcasts, I'll be speaking with people who are experts in their area in terms of mental health and well-being. Thank you for joining us and thank you for being part of the Generation Next podcast group. Thank you. Today, I'm just delighted to be talking with Madonna King, who as a journalist, as an author, as a speaker, and as an all-round good person, basically has done a lot of thinking about particularly young women, but also their fathers and their families. And her most recent book of many is Teenager, which is a great book. And uh, I know because I've had some small contribution to it, so I'm going to take some credit for it. Um, and today we're going to talk about young, young women and basically some of the issues to do with them in terms of anxiety, puberty, sleep and well-being. So welcome, Madonna. It's great to be with you. Thanks for having me, Andrew. So give us an overview. What, what drew you to think about those 10-year-olds and interviewing not only them, but also uh, their parents and teachers and some other people around that issue? I did a book called Being 14 because I think 14 is acknowledged as a fairly tricky age, particularly for girls. And when that came out, I was inundated with letters, particularly from mums saying, look, could my daughter be very advanced? I'm getting the eye rolls or the attitude much younger than 14. And this was just a common theme. And I started thinking, you know, are we getting older, younger, for the want of a better phrase? And are we seeing things now in our 10-year-olds that maybe we saw in their big sisters only five or ten years ago and that set me on a path to 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 seek the counsel of 500 10 year old girls along with a whole lot of others and, and that's behind the research I've done. I'd certainly support that in my own work that appreciable change in the last five years of the way young uh, women particularly but young men as well present. What were some of the findings that you came across? Oh, some made me smile and others just made me feel sick, Andrew. Uh, I think one of the big things about 10-year-old girls is in one class, there is such a variance. So some girls described their builder bear to me. Others said, are you going to have a chapter on what happens if you like a boy and how do you know if he likes you back? So those girls are sitting in the same class with such a variance in development that you don't necessarily see at 14. Um, and as a result of that, everything from friendship to body image to, to, to all those sort of things comes to the fore. But the two things that just stopped me in my tracks, and I don't have your expert knowledge in this area. I interviewed experts like you after getting the girls' responses. But one thing I don't think parents like me know is how 10-year-old girls are putting a ceiling on their potential at that age. They're deciding, I'm not a maths girl or I'm not a science girl. And they're doing that because they're sitting around in a class and they may see even in a small group that their mark's not as good as the girl next to them. And they're immediately then saying, well, that's not the path I'll take. And they're actually lowering that ceiling. And that broke my heart. The second thing I think 
really shocked me and other things did too but was puberty because you know we know a girl gets her period the average age is 12 and a half and we think she reaches puberty but all the really good research is suggesting that happens maybe the, the age of about seven that they're the invisible or as the expert said under the bonnet changes and I don't think either teachers or parents actually understand that to the point where we can help them and, and a wonderful researcher in this area is Professor George Patton from, from Melbourne and he said to me a couple of things that often when girls need um, assistance from experts like you at 15 or 16 they may have had the issue from the age of seven or eight so we're not really doing early intervention we're just saying we are that was one thing. And the other thing he said to me was, if you want a Nash Barty, you can put a tennis racket in the hand of a three-year-old and you'll probably never get one. But if you put that tennis racket in the hand at seven or eight, when they're switching on both in the head and in the body, when they're looking at who are their influences, who they want to role model, what they think of work, if you do it then, you're more likely to get an ash party. And his point simply is that, you know, the period may be the visible signs of puberty, but we need to focus on those invisible signs which are much earlier and that can really change a girl's trajectory in everything from her mental health to how she sees the world, to whether she's a good or a naughty girl, to um, obesity or, or, or um, some of those issues as well. And that's information I wish I knew a little bit earlier too. So one of the things that people often talk about is the grade or year three phenomenon, uh, where around year three, young people decide whether they're smart and capable and can move on to sort of academic success and sometimes social success as well or not. Are you saying that you've, you think that's really uh, in, in sort of sync with what you're saying? I'm saying it's confirmed in two ways, by that scientific research on puberty and by the voices of 500 girls. And when you say we've known, I disagree with you there. Experts like you have known. People who work in this area have known. But I think this is a secret to parents and to teachers. And I think if teachers of girls in years three and four, they often point to something they can't really put their finger on, but this is it. And I don't know how we approach it or how we go about it, but I think that's what we need to address to help girls um, as they become 10 and 11 and 12 and 13 and 14 actually become have a stronger belief in themselves and decide to run their own race, not the race of a, a girl in the next lane. Do you think we're sacrificing a generation of capable young women through envy and comparison and ranking and hierarchies? That's a strong way of putting it, but I would say yes, and it breaks my heart. And I think a lot of people say we put this research, all this research into infants and toddlers, that we need more research into this area and to this age. And I can see it in the girls. You know, neuroscientists say, we don't know how much of the brain is developed at 10. So how the hell can a 10-year-old make that decision that I'm not going to be good at this? And, and then they believe it. And some experts said to me, you know, they put that on themselves in that they internalise. And one example for parents who are listening is a school counsellor said to me, uh, she's at, she, when she was little, was at this 
parent-teacher interview and that the teacher said, oh, well, you know, she's not really good at maths. And a mother piped up and said, oh, that's me all over. I was never good at maths either. And mm. so they read into that and then they think, well, why would I be any different? And I think language is something that we underestimate, how we, how we talk to our girls and what they read into that because they don't have the critical thinking skills of parents and we have to remember that when we're saying something to them, I think. So the, the famous child, child psychologist Jean Piaget called this phase of life concrete operations, where, which is not a very good title for it because it's hard <laughs> to understand. But what it basically means is that kids can think quite intricately about issues as long as they have an adult who guides them and shows them and helps them to find not only the concept, but also their own capacities within themselves. So I'm just wondering, out of the research that you've done, and thank you for doing it, what implications are there for families and also for teachers in terms of this age group? I think there's many, but going on what you've just said, one thing that worries me is we know at about this age, girls go from, and perhaps boys too, but they go from reorientating themselves from their family, and that is their world, to outside influences. Teachers are an influence, others are an influence, but their peers are a big influence. And it's, there's a sense of irony, I think, in that as they're looking to reorient themselves to the, the wider world, they're looking at where they fit in and they're developing this mass identity where they've got to have the same ponytail and the same look. They've got to look like the girl next door. They think that fitting in is the ticket to good friendship, to having, to looking good, to being popular. And I don't know how we change it. Well, I've got some ideas, but I think, think that this push for young girls to fit in at any cost is costing them a whole lot of happiness and it's creating an anxiety that some psychiatrist told me in the words of professor james scott he says this is actually a burden and he's seeing it more in 10 year old girls than boys but this idea of having to succeed and having to fit in and having to to be these things that you know yes maybe it's always been an issue a little bit older or with some groups but now it's overriding I asked a, a 10 year old who thought she was fat what did she want to look like and she said like such and such and I said well what does she look like she couldn't actually describe it other than to say well you know her nose is kind of right she's the right height and she's the right weight and one school psychologist said to me the sad thing about that is girls want to change those things they can't you know their color their height their frame their nose their ears I think that's a really really tough thing isn't it and and if their friends are being so hard on themselves in judgment I can understand why a 10 year old would be harsh on herself and my overriding thing and it's not scientific like the advice you would give perhaps but you know if I had a 10 year old I'd take her down to a pool this afternoon and show her the lanes and say jump off that block because you know we all jump off the block at the beginning of our life we all end up at the end but we've got to swim in our own lane. We'll stop for a spell. We'll go backstroke, then breaststroke, then freestyle. We'll go fast. We'll go slow. We'll stop and have something to eat along the way. We've all got our own lane and we've got to learn to swim in it. 
And the moment we try to cross to another lane and compare ourselves and compete with others at that age, I think we're, we're creating a more difficult journey for ourselves. Mm. Does that so make sense? Yes, it does. Absolutely. Do you think, having thought about this, that a really positively affirming adult who acknowledges the individuality of a young woman can override the brutality of the peer group comparison? I think it can go some way. I would say it's an antidote, not only to that peer comparison, but to the fakery they're seeing online. So, of course, social media is important for, for our girls, particularly as they get a bit older. But I think the antidote to that is good, authentic men and women who can act as mentors. And they don't have to be someone who sits down each afternoon and says, now, how's your day? It can be a second cousin in another town who they pick up the phone or you organise to meet three times a year. It can be a teacher from primary school. It can be the old lady three doors up who's watering a garden this afternoon and stops for a three-minute chat. And I think that the more our children are drawn into that friendship fitness group and social media, that style of mentor um, who's just, you know, done a few laps of the park and who is authentic. So they can say, look, I really stuffed up on a friendship. This is what I did. Or, you know, this is something I learned the hard way. And our girls mightn't take it as a lesson then or there, but the next time they're in strife, they can. And I think we've forgotten the value of exactly what you say, the real life and mentors or coach is probably the wrong word because they don't have to be there every day, but they have to be on tap. And I think parents can't take offence when their daughter comes and says, I want to talk to Auntie Narelle. And that's hard on a mum. You know, I don't want to talk to you about this, mum. I want to talk to Auntie Narelle or Uncle Bob. And the beauty of grandparents here just shone through. You know, I'll talk to granddad. Why? Because he won't judge me. And I heard that over and over again in being 14 and now here. You know, our kids fight. But one beautiful thing about this was the role of the big sister. A lot of 10-year-olds said, I know my, my big sister would have gone through this, so sometimes I talk to her. If we can cultivate that in our older girls and in, and in our brothers and sisters as adults so that they pick up the phone and remember their birthday and do those things not online or around that, that the lunch table at school, it will go some way is my very long answer to, to just acting as an antidote to, to all that other stuff. So sometimes when I'm working with uh, groups of, of younger students, I'll say to them and I'll accuse them really of thinking too small. And I'll say to them, your future, your future competition is not in this room or even in this school because often they do focus on the peer comparisons rather than succeeding on a broader scale. Does that fit with what you've found? Absolutely. And that's what I mean by putting a ceiling on their own potential. It's understandable they can't necessarily see the big picture, although my research would suggest kids in country areas might be able to see it more easily than kids in city areas because they see the life cycle of animals and mum and dad go through drought and floods and, and things like that. But it's a hard thing to convince a girl, isn't it? And I think it probably comes with little steps of achievement. One, or not one, a couple of school principals 
brought me back to the idea of this girl's search for identity. And sometimes, you know, we've taught everyone they have to be happy all the time. So if they're not happy 100% of the time, there's something wrong. And she said there's a small step between being happy and being perfect. And what this principle and two others told me about it too is they're finding in slightly older girls is that they won't hand something in if they've had to scratch it out or they can't answer one question. And so they find it easier to say, I didn't hand the assignment in rather than I handed it in and got something wrong. And we know in life, and, you know, don't get me on my high horse, but we have standardised tests where we just compare 10-year-olds and 8-year-olds and 9-year-olds. Girls said to me, I'm not good at maths, I'm not good at science, I'm not good at history, I'm not good at netball. No one said to me, I'm not good at being kind or I'm not a good pet owner or I'm not good at something else that we know once we're accepted into university, the academic score means zero. People come to a good GP because they can diagnose an illness, but they can then explain it. So where do we rate their communication skills? Leaders of our companies stay leaders, uh, and we've just seen this in an American election, when they can take people with them, not when they can't. So where are we valuing leadership? To be a team player in private enterprise now is a ticket to success. But where are we measuring that? Now, I know it's hard, but it's 2021. And in a world of disruption, I think we should be putting more effort into working out how we can measure those things. Because you can't blame a, a parent. I'm as, bad, I'm as bad as anyone. You get a report card and you go, oh, sweetie, an A plus, you smashed it. Or you've got to be in this. And I know, you know, that's, that's really good. Look at his, where it is on the scale. Does it matter? You know, and we can tell ourselves it, but while schools and teachers and a system of funding is rewarding that at the expense of being a kind, curious, independent person, we're going to have a problem, Andrew. Don't you think? I agree wholeheartedly. Let's prepare a few takeaways for our audience. And before I ask you this question, uh, thank you for the work you do. It's, I just want to honour it because I think it's so important to really think about this and I'll say exactly why I think it's so important because all of my research on resilience would tell me in any country in the world in any level of civilization if I wanted to increase the resilience in any particular country area town city where I would begin would be in the empowerment of young women because that will have the biggest effect in any society I can think of. So I'm wondering to sort of wrap this up a little bit, how, what do you think we've learned from your wonderful research about what we can do now to empower, we can talk about the problems of anxiety and sleep deprivation and social media. We all know those to some extent, but how do we empower young women so that they believe in themselves, that they know that they're smart? Yeah, this is the one area where I saw a difference in how experts view it. Some said, you know, it's about the language they use and standing up straight and, and doing meditation and being grateful, you know, for the privilege they have. Then there's another school of thought, which I subscribe to quite strongly, and I think you may too on all your research. And that is that resilience 
And self-confidence comes from competency. Now, I don't mean uh, in a standardised test. I mean so a girl knows how she can make patty cakes because that's what she wants to do for afternoon tea. And it may be serving at a homeless kitchen when they're a bit older. It's about looking outside themselves and thinking, I can do this. And the moment they say, I can do this, they've mastered something. Our generation have instant gratification and we've taught them that. We haven't gifted them the idea of patience or that achievement comes from hard work. And I think we have to get them to climb those obstacles because with each one they climb, I think their self-confidence can just go up one little step. And that's the goal because that will then build the resilience. If we keep taking those obstacles away and and some of the stories, principles tell you of how parents do that for their children, if we keep taking them away, how do they learn to be resilient? How do they cope when that boyfriend at the age 20, at 21, dump them? Or whether when they miss out on those first two jobs, they haven't learnt. And our job, I think, as parents and as educators to some extent is to teach them how to get over the obstacles, not to go around them. Wise words. Thank you so much, Madonna. It's been a delight to talk with you about this really important topic. And again, I really value the work that you've done. Thank you so much. My pleasure, Andrew. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. If you would like to follow up in further detail, please listen in to some of the other podcasts that we have made which are available through the Generation Next website. There are also a series of books uh, from Generation Next in terms of nurturing young minds, uh, covering a series of issues to do with young people, and also in my own book, Tricky Behaviours and Your Best Life at Any Age, which are both available either on Amazon or through Bad Apple Press. Thank you so much, and I hope to connect with you again soon. Thank you. The Mental Health and Wellbeing of Young People seminar has gone digital. This is a resource for anyone who supports young people. The eLearning Hub has all your favourite speakers from the Generation Next events and much more. There are hours and hours of courses to choose from. We know life's busy, so we made sure you can pause the courses at any stage and continue where you left off the next time you log in. You can also automatically download your certificates of participation and record your notes and ideas with the documentation tool and editable course books. If you would like to try it out, head to generationnext.com.au and sign up yourself and your whole team for the next free course. And please, share the resource far and wide. Thank you for your support for Generation Next and all you do to support young people.